everyone. My name is Jack Barr. Welcome to the Vortex Podcast. This is our Black History Month episode, and to celebrate that, we are having an episode all about African-American writers. And with us today, we have Marissa Childs, back again from uh, the Valentine's Day episode. Hey! And we have with us uh, the blessed presence of Dr. M. Shelley Connor. Wow, thank you. Hi! <laughs> Would you guys like to say anything uh, just right at the top about, like, who you are, basically, for our listeners? Uh, Dr. Corner, you can go first. Sure. Um, Well, I am, first off, a Chicago transplant here in Arkansas. So just moved down um, last summer and started here at UCA. So this is my second semester. Um, I'm a writer, multi-genre writer, so fiction, screenwriting, playwriting, Creative nonfiction. I've pretty much done most of it all. Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> Go listen to the other podcast. That's all. Yes. So Marissa's recommendation is to check out our lovely Valentine's Day episode that we recorded. She gave plenty of inf- information there. I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's like something new about me. Not something new, but you know, something more. You you can describe yourself differently if you want to. Like I'm. I don't. I barely remember what I said in the beginning. Um. Other than that, I just graduated uh, last semester, um, and so right now I think I'm in the phase of trying to figure myself out. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mentioned, oh yeah, I mentioned that I'm adulting, so there's nothing really new. That was like two weeks ago, y'all. What's your degree? Yeah. My degree? I'm a double major in professional and creative writing. Oh, well there we go. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. Oh, I was double major, so I have two degrees. That's impressive. Yeah. I didn't know you had two degrees. Yeah, I have two degrees, and I graduated in three and a half years. Now I'm just impressed. I graduated <laughs> in three years as well. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, oh. you got a book. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are looking at me. I'm going to graduate in five years, but that's, that's, that's <laughs> what happens you, whenever you switch your major. I'll tell you a secret. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I graduated in three years, and... It took me longer for my master's, um, and it took me longer for my PhD, and so then there I am with a PhD, and when I finally get a tenure-track position, there are people who've had it younger than me, you know? I realized that last, well, no, yeah, beginning of last semester, me and my friend were talking, and we were just like, well, she was trying to get me to stay longer, and I was like, I'm emotionally and mentally not. I'm done. Really, I, I was at that point where I was ready to fight professors, and it was like, I'm done. I, I'm over it. Um, but we both were like, kind of thinking about why we went to college, because both of us are the first to graduate in our family uh, from college, um, and actually without children. And so for both of us, it was, we were just kind of reflecting on why we spent that much time and dedicated that much time to graduating and or just going to college, period. Mm-hmm. Um I was like, I don't really know, but I I got the degrees, so, so nobody can tell me anything from now yeah. on. That's good, and here you are, recording a podcast. <laughs> Quite an accomplishment, it is. Oh, thank you. Yes. So let's get into the discussion uh, of African American writers. Um, so there's an interesting uh, thing with identity. And whenever you're writing, you may want to consider separating your personal identity of who you are as a person, you know, just your name, uh, between and, and separating that from your writing identity, the identity you want to present, and the identity and the voice that you feel should be heard. Yeah, um, so much of my work, especially after getting the PhD, so certainly for the past decade of my writing, has been to realize that it's okay for those two things to be one and the same, my, my writing identity and my identity as a person. Um, so a lot of my work has been using my personal identity as a black queer woman um, to then look at race and gender um, and sexuality and class issues to use my own identity as a lens to look at some of these broader aspects. And so it took me a while to be okay with that and okay enough with it to write myself through it, um, to use writing as a tool for that exploration. So that's what my life has been about for the past decade. And it took that long 
in order to combine those separate identities mm -hmm. because they were very much compartmentalized and it will pull you apart trying to do that. Um, there was even a point where it's like, okay, my fiction can explore this and my creative nonfiction can explore something else. I mean, I was, I was fractured um, in, in so many different ways. Um, and so like even my name, I'm, my name is M. Shelley Connor, but of course I was not born M. Shelley Connor. I had a, you know, official <laughs> long first name and everything. I just didn't feel attached to that name. Um, for the most part, it was my formal name in school, and all my friends and family called me Shelley. So from the time that I was born, so that even created its own sort of fracture, that I have this name and these formal relationships in school, and then I have these informal relationships that I'm closer and more familiar with at home, and there's a name for that, Shelley, right? And so um, having to, you know, quite literally merge um, these parts of myself, even my name, into something that reflected one intersectional identity. So, yeah. Mm. I think I kind of talked about this before. I'm really taking advice from no, Dr. Connor totally, right now. Yeah, it's I'm totally really fine. just like, yep, yep, Dr. <laughs> Connor. Oh, <laughs> but for me, I, I, I think I talked about this a little bit before, just kind of having to... Uh, figure out who who I want to speak to because I I think I talked about this w before we started I'm not a feminist I'm not pro-black uh, I don't really have a lot of interesting things about me other than the fact that I love Korean men so <laughs> I, I oftentimes don't feel like I have anything big to split up other than the fact that I am black and there are all these different things about me that most people would not characterize as being black. Um, and they're very small things. So like my love for Korean men is weird to my family. Um, my love for white men is weird to my family. Um, my love for anything different, anything that's not American or anything that's not generally known as black or stereotypically black is different. Um, and, but I embody that in all of my work because that's who I am and that's all I know. Um, so for me right now, I'm trying to find a balance and how, how to, uh, write those things down and approach those things so that everybody can at least appreciate them. Not necessarily understand them because not everybody's going to understand enough that people can appreciate it and comprehend it. Um, and trying to reach everybody, not just the black audience and not just a white audience or, or not even just, you know, I don't know, an Asian audience, but trying to appeal to everyone. Um, that's my battle right now, and I'm, I'm hoping it takes decades, because um, <laughs> I really enjoy it. I really enjoy trying to figure that out. I'm a thinker. I think a lot. Um, so I really enjoy trying to put those puzzles together, even in my writing. And, you know, as you said, that takes a long time, and part of that is just being vulnerable and, and being able to expose yourself uh, for who you are as a writer and as a person and that you know can take a long time as as Shelley said it you know took you a decade or so yeah longer yeah, yeah. <laughs> a decade plus yeah. <laughs> yeah but I mean what what you're saying about things that aren't stereotypically black that you like um, I'm sure there's there's precedents that show you that there are things that aren't unique to blackness or these cultures right. or mm -hmm. there certainly um, are precedents out there of where you aren't restricted to things that are stereotypically black and and either defining what you do as being against that right mm -hmm. so when you think about um, take some someone for instance like the Wu-Tang Clan mm -hmm. you know Definitely. they've got a great appreciation for martial arts um, and parts of Asian, cult Asian culture that has fused um, within black culture, especially growing up in the 80s. Um, uh, Kung Fu Saturday cartoons, I mean, yes. it was really, really huge in the black community. So much so that even like Bruce Lee did a movie with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Abdul right. in it. Um, mm -hmm. Because you have um, these cultures at that time that were kind of showing 
a mutual appreciation for things. You'll see things in, in Asian culture like K-pop and things that are, and hip-hop being very Fused. big in those yes. cultures mm -hmm. as well. Um, you think about the genre of Afro-punk, you know, um, saying that this isn't something that's um, exclusive to white or mainstream culture, that uh, black culture has always um, been very much involved either with the creation of some of these genres or certainly in the early parts of it, rock and roll, same thing. So I understand you're not wanting to be pigeonholed saying that, oh, you're somehow, or consider yourself being somehow outside of blackness because you like these things right. that may not be stereotypically black. I mean, some of the things that you may like may be as black as they come. And that's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, a lot of the things that I'm into that end up, they are all things that are somehow connected to black people. So Korean music or K-pop, for example, a lot of it is, first of all, Korean pop itself is a mixture of Eastern and Western music. Mm -hmm. um, but that is mostly, because Western music mostly comes from black people anyway, um, <laughs> it's already infused with hip-hop, R&B, uh, blues, jazz. It's already infused with that. And not black, and black people don't really realize that. And of course, I think in this time, in 2019, we're, we're re- we were re-rising with the civil rights movement and everybody has an opinion about cultural appropriation and so everybody's having to redefine that um and battle that right now and so even in k-pop that's that's a big thing is kind of figuring out what cultural appropriation really means and why we have to battle it even in 2019 in korea um so end up like the things that people don't think have anything any relation to black people and I love it I end up it all has some kind of relation to black people even without me really caring about whether it does or not um but just the fact that that's an argument that I have to have with people about what makes me black I think I mentioned did I mention this before that my mom, I, it doesn't matter yeah. my mom kind of was talking to me one day and she was like Marissa you're black but you're not black and I remember I, I didn't know if I was supposed to be offended or if I was supposed to be okay with it. Like, and I think after a while, I just kind of laughed it off because my mom grew up in a totally different generation. Um, different understandings of what it means to be black. I think at a time when being black and trying to convince yourself that you're beautiful and you're worth it was a way bigger talk than it is now. Now it's kind of a casual talk where you just are, and nobody can tell you anything different. Um, back then, it was more of you were trying to convince yourself that you are. Um, and so, for me, I just had to laugh it off when she said it. But that's even a discussion within our own writing now. Just kind of mm -hmm. thinking about those things that are supposed to make me a black writer, and not just a writer. And oftentimes, if you read anything I write, Sometimes I go back and I, I hate reading my own stuff because I go back and I'm looking at it and I'm like, that's not me. And then my professor's like, Marissa, this is you. Like, <laughs> this is you on a daily basis. And it's really hard to, to figure that out and, and battle that. Well, one thing, you will always be a black writer. It's just like you'll always be a black woman. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that's not to say you don't think of yourself just as, you know, your gender as a woman at times. But you'll always be a black woman and a black writer, right? In mm -hmm. those exactly in the same way. You can't really pull them apart. Um, I had the same argument, argument with my mom um, about queerness. She's like, why do you always have to write queer stuff? Why can't it just be black? And I'm like, because I'm not just black. I'm black and queer. And even yeah. if I write about being in an all-black setting, I still have experiences within that setting because I'm queer. In fact, they might even be more highlighted because of the homogeneity of, of race, you know? And so then I stand out in that way. Um, and so you have experiences that are intersectional like that. And I, I wrote a piece called Homophobia Under the Big Top. Mm -hmm. And it was about taking my nephew to the Universal Circus, the Black Circus, right? And so I'm like, yeah, we're going to all black everything. This is going to be awesome. And then um, they did this little skit where they were going to do an old school versus new school dance contest. And so they um, asked for two couples 
out of the audience and so one was dancing to the old school music and one was going to dance to the new school music and so right when he's calling these couples up he says something like now by couple i mean a man and a woman we don't want any type of confusion here and i'm like that was so unnecessary yeah. i was enjoying everything but it pulled me out of that moment immediately and not only me i'm like my my nephew's here you know at that time he's five years old and you know, I want him hanging with his, his cool queer aunt and, you know, just to normalize everything, but to have that, you know. Um, and you don't expect when these moments happen. You want to just enjoy yourself in the moment, like everyone else is, but you're pulled out of it. And those are the moments that we investigate and that we write about. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true, especially, I, I guess it's time for that story. During Black History Month last year, I had my first encounter with the white misunderstanding of black culture. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna call it that because I, I don't want to call it racism. You know, as a student here, yeah, there, there's subtleties. <laughs> there's uh, yeah. They also call it the white gaze. <laughs> the white gaze. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Oh, it was. Uh, it was. It was just my first time. I'm gonna, and it was a lot of. I don't know. It was a lot of calmness because I'm a very calm, mild person. I don't get mad that quickly, mm-hmm. that quickly. But I came in class one day and I was just like, yo, uh, happy Black People's Month. We here, we celebrating. And I sat down and I think uh, as soon as I said that, someone, she, she said, it's a she, she said, uh, n- not, you know, no disrespect or anything, but I just don't get the point of Black History Month. Like, why does it exist? And in my head, I was just kind of like, okay, but you're stupid. <laughs> and like in my head, because that's, that's one of those basic questions that at age 21, you shouldn't be asking. In yeah. America, like if you're, if you're from another country, you're raised in a different country, I guess. But in America, when you're 21, that's an unreasonable question. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of just sitting there and not being hurt. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't angry. Um, yeah, she she was just trying to open up a conversation. Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah, she she was really just trying to start conversation early morning. It's, it's actually too early for that. It's still o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, but trying to start that conversation of really and later what she told me was that she was just saying you know it's unreasonable why like why can't every month be Black History Month you know that's not what you said but that's that's the conversation she said she was trying to start. Yeah. Um, and I think. What that did, what that moment did for me was made me really think about the fact that I'm surrounded by white white females every day. Every day. Two or three black girls. No black men. Two or three. I may. This is the situation. If you are a major in creative writing at UCA, (laughs) I don't know about everybody else, but at UCA, you can, there can be a few days where you're in the class as a black female by yourself mm-hmm. if somebody decides they're not coming to class. Yeah. Not in my classes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, this is what's crazy. She came the, sem- at the semester after I remember mm-hmm. talking, looking at one of my teachers. Hi, Jack here. The professor, whose name I have omitted, was asked this question by Marissa. Why, why aren't there any black professors? And she just looked at me and she was just like, I don't know. And that was so disappointing. I, I think for me, it was it, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, Marissa, this is what you did to yourself. You ended up surrounding yourself with no one older who's gone through it, been through it. Because none of my family has graduated from college. So you haven't surrounded yourself with anybody who's going to graduate or who has graduated and can really guide you. Now you're surrounded by tons of white girls who have their own opinions about who you are as a black writer or as a writer period and in a way as much as you don't want to believe this is me talking to myself like as much as you don't want to believe they've had some play some role in how you write now they do they have and not to say that i'm disappointed or that i'm angry about it but now i'm out of that setting and that means i have to question whether i'm going to adjust uh, now to my new environment where I'm surrounded by my family or am I going to continue to write the way that I've been taught to write because not just the professor's not the only one who's teaching you to write when you're in a creative writing class it's 
It's all the people who sit down and workshop your work. It's all the people you sit down and workshop. So now I have to question myself whether I'm going to use the techniques that I actually learned to use or if I'm going to try to adjust myself the way I want to adjust myself mm -hmm. um, and actively be a part of that adjustment. But when you're surrounded by that and you realize you are kind of the only one in the class, you know, that's, that's black and that's trying to figure all this out, everybody else kind of, kind of sort of has it all figured out already, it kind of automatically pushes you out. Because now all your stories are going to be about, I don't know who I am as a writer. And your story is going to be about all the pains of being black. And you know in the back of your head that somebody's going to have a complaint. Why are you always writing about this? Like, can we not have Black History Month <laughs> today? <laughs> can we just focus on something else? Can you write about something else? In the back of your head, that's what you hear. And it's, it's really weird to just feel like you have to write about that. Because for the longest time, I think for like a couple of months, I tried to fight that, trying to write about those things. But that was all that was going through my head. And so now I'm having to adjust and, and push myself back into this environment that's like accepting of the fact that I'm black mm -hmm. and allowing me to write those things without me having those thoughts of somebody's going to be like, could you stop? <laughs> yeah. And our, that's really weird. Yeah, our, we're definitely a product of our environments. That's, that's something that I don't think anyone can deny. And the way I see identity is that I almost see it on like a gradient where it just it, it ranges it can vary on what you're doing and where you are on a particular day mm -hmm. and there's so many complexities and, and there's so many novelties to everyone's identity you know you can't just put someone on a map and just keep them on one part of that map you know anyone can flow anywhere they want to you, you know we the the point the reason why we have this month is mm -hmm. is to just uh, provide or to display all these all these people of this culture mm. for who they are as as people, not necessarily oh. as part of this identity, I guess. Well, I mean, I, I think that kind of lends itself to I don't see color. Yeah. Because we do. We're, we're doing it. We're sitting here because we're black right now, and it's Black History Month. That's mm -hmm. why. So, I mean, there's no need to, to like, sugarcoat it or, or feel bad about it. It's simply that... A lot of times when you're profiling people, they don't tend to be black. So black people are considered a minority for a reason, not necessarily just because it's fewer of us, mm -hmm. um, but we're marginalized all the time. We're always going to be fewer in number um, on campuses, in certain programs, and things like that. And so it leads to a very marginalized experience. What Black History Month is supposed to do is try to achieve some sort of balance. Like, okay, since we largely ignore um, the accomplishments or, or of, of black people for 11 months, we're gonna give them the shortest month, um, and there's 28 days. And it, it also, it initially started as um, uh, Negro History Week. It was only a week long, and mm. it was started by, I wanna say Carter G. Woodson. So it was a week just to focus on the accomplishments of, of black people to also kind of negate a lot of the negative, you know, stereotypes that are out there um, in the media and things like that. And so it's supposed to continue to do that, particularly in schools where, you know, you're still battling textbooks and, and resources that are heavily skewed um, towards uh, white Western history achievements and things like that. We definitely don't want to say, you know, that we're just focusing on black people regardless of their race, just their kind of who they are as, as people, because that's exactly why we're sitting here, because of our race. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but to show that that personhood within that race, within our identity, and to, you know, talk about our experiences, our hopes, our dreams, and, you know, just to... We're, we're two writers here, we're, but we are two black writers and two black women writers. That's what I was going to say. We're two black female writers, and I always <laughs> emphasize that. Uh, I think I talked about I think I talked about that. I, I submitted an application to Northwestern University, which I didn't get in, but we ain't going to talk about that. Um, 
I submitted an application in and I wrote about the two strike system. And I don't know, do you know what the two strike system is? No. Nope. Please uh, educate our listeners. Um, <laughs> the two strike two strike system is basically saying that if you're born black and you're born female, you automatically have two strikes against you and you only have one more strike before you're out or you're not worth anything, really. Hope you aren't queer, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's, that's what I was thinking whenever, whenever she said that. Oh, and see, and, and it's not, it, it doesn't have to be that. It can be that you have a daughter... Or, or a disability. disability. Or a disability. Yeah. Or that you didn't graduate with a high school degree. It doesn't have to be much, right? And it's not just to white people. It's to black men, too. Um, it's one of those things that uh, I was shocked. I was, no one really shocked. I ain't gonna lie. I wasn't shocked. I was more of shook. We're gonna say shook. Because the person who told me about that was my African-American history teacher. It was amazing to sit in that class and listen to her talk about the system. And she got so angry. Why people crack me up? They get so angry <laughs> about racism. But it was interesting to see how angry she got about that. Because in my head, as she was telling me, I was just kind of like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But to her, it, it, was, it was like a pain. It was like sore for her. And it's just interesting to think about that because... I am a black woman and I'm also a writer and for some reason in the black community that can be a strike not being a doctor and not being a lawyer because I've gotten this far why am I not a lawyer why am I not a surgeon it's it's kind of like a strike against me in that way and somehow the strike gets taken off because I have a degree it's it's weird yeah um (laughs) I have to think about that often in my own writing what that means in association with Black History Month when I think about just reflecting on why Black History Month is a thing. Well, you know why that is, why being a writer is considered a strike um, in black communities? Everything that we do is supposed to be for the black community. Mm -hmm. And so you would be more immediately valuable as a doctor, as a lawyer, as things that the black community really really needs um, they'll support you as a writer but just like it takes a while to develop your career as a writer and that visibility and things you know they're wondering well what are you doing that's more useful now to the community so that's the one thing about black culture that that differs Um, we're always a representative for the race so whether we do something positive or negative is for the race, which is our biggest complaint. You have someone who commits a crime and they're black, all of a sudden, all of black culture is charged with that crime. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, when you think about just about all the mass <laughs> shooters in this country have been white men, white men, it's, it's not thought to be... Um, a strike against white people as a whole. Right, or, yeah. or, or white men. You don't hear this is a problem with the white community or what's wrong with white culture where they keep producing these mass shooters. You don't get that. But um, with black culture, and this is, you know, coming from outside of it, this is, you know, will you represent your race? More clearly represent that in a certain way if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a scientist, um, mm-hmm. any of these. But a writer, they don't really know what to do with so much. Um, yeah. You can tell our stories, but we tell our stories all the time. Have you heard of Black Twitter? Everybody's heard of Black Twitter. If mm-hmm. you haven't, you're weird. Um, <laughs> but everybody's heard of Black Twitter. And, and Black Twitter is one of those places where everybody's telling everybody's business and everybody has something to say about how it's related to uh, encouraging or discouraging the black community. And it's interesting. It's an interesting place to be because a lot of times you have to deal with uh, it's a lot of judgment. It's a lot of judgment. I think we talked about this last week about defining what woke means. It's, it's, it's really the woke community and it's the woke com- community with this much intelligence Mm -hmm. and so everybody has an opinion but that doesn't mean everybody's opinion is a fair opinion or a right opinion and a lot of times putting yourself out there as a black writer or something like that is one of those things where it's like oh okay you dismissed it's it's the unfair part of that 
and it's kind of interesting to just interact with that community. Um, a lot of times, I don't, I don't say this often, but I'm actually like very shy around other black people when it comes to reflecting on what it means to be black or reflecting on what Black History Month is about. I'm very shy. I'm a listener when it comes to other black people talking. That's why I haven't either sit here with Dr. Connor and just let him talk. Um, <laughs> because I'm actually a very shy person. I feel like I have submersed or been so immersed in, in a white community that it's hard for me to have a say within my own community. And somebody might actually agree with me. Yeah, you probably shouldn't be saying nothing right now. But I, I oftentimes when I get on black Twitter, for example, it's it's really hard to have a say in that community because I feel like I'm I have my third strike already. Because I've some I've put myself in a white community. It's a lot all I can really put out there is equality and quality <laughs> and I don't really have anything that's gonna really be um, supportive of this idea of pro-blackness. I don't, I don't have that. I don't really have, in my mind, the black community is very, as much as we want to uplift each other, we, 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 we put each other down. Mm-hmm. We push each other down. I don't know if Dr. O'Connor agree, but. I mean, I think, I think there <coughs> definitely can be instances of tough love if you, if you think of black communities as families. And you have some who are supportive in the ways that you need, and some who are not supportive, not seemingly supportive at all. And some, they, they think they're being supportive, you know, by um, kind of pulling your coattails and um, telling you things that they don't think that you know. But you've got your own experience. Unless you can walk out of your house and be mistaken for being white, <laughs> you have a seat at every black table that's available, right? You, right. you have a say in, in every issue that has to do with with blackness um there is nothing that i or anyone else can tell you about being black that you don't already know that you haven't already experienced regardless especially if you're in a white community and surrounded by whiteness Mm -hmm. you know my my wife tells me all the time because um i grew up just enshrined in blackness (laughs) i mean it, it, it doesn't get much blacker on the, the, the south side of Chicago. My mom was like an ex-Panther, also a retired librarian, black library on the south side. I went to Whitney Young, which is still one of the top um, high schools in the country. Also, um, Michelle Obama graduated from there, a little bit before me, of course. <laughs> but at, uh, certainly at that time, Whitney Young, when I went there, was 60% black still one of the type um, magnet high schools in the country. And then I went to Tuskegee, um, a historically black college and university. Um, my master's program in education, it was the urban teaching program. So even though the university was white, I was in this small kind of predominantly black program. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I did my PhD at the University of Chicago that I was in a program where I was like the only black person in that year. It seemed like they only accepted one a year. So (laughs) that's about how it went. So by then I had been just like inoculated with blackness in so Mm -hmm. many different ways. So, and I also was older by the time I got into the PhD program. I didn't start it till I think I was like 30. So I was older. And so I had this identity cushion and it was also my first time in workshops. So mm-hmm. I knew what to take that I could value in, in workshops, and I knew what just did not sound right. Like, okay, you don't have an idea of the world that um, I'm writing from. And a, a great person to read and listen to is Toni Morrison talking about who she writes for, black people, and why. And so, oh man, just everything that she says in her interviews is just gold about that. Um, There's this one interview that kind of resurfaced that was probably back in the 80s and this uh, white interviewer was asking her, did she ever think she would get to a point where she would write white people in a meaningful way? (laughs) And she was like, I have. And she was like, but do you think that you will center, and she said, you can't believe how unbelievably racist that question is. 
-hmm. You would never ask a white writer, when are they going to write about blackness in a meaningful way? When are they going to center blackness in a meaningful way? And she says, and you ask this because you are used to whiteness being at the center of everything. And when you are not centered, you don't see how I could possibly be already a mainstream writer without centering whiteness. One thing, I, I don't know if, if she said it in this interview, but something else I read, she said she took herself to the edge and she centered what was over there. And then she waited for everyone else to come to her. So when you talk about being on the margins, blackness is on the margins as far as identities. She centered something that is on the margins and just wrote from there and stayed there and focused on there. And then the audience came. And that's Toni Morrison. So, I mean, that's who I'm following and, and reading. And then you've got um, other more contemporary authors now, Kiesi Lehman, who I'm a huge fan of his work. And you, you have younger black writers now, my age and younger, really doing this. Like, we see who to follow and using them as a beacon. Um, and then, yeah, continue to go to your workshops, continue to write, continue to get frustrated with what you're writing. Be frustrated that you're writing about blackness. Write till blackness writes out of you, if that's possible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah but just, yeah, just write. You're going to write your experiences. They're going to color everything that you write. Um, right. And you'll find yourself using it. It is, it is the figurative ink that you are using, your experiences, um, right. and you craft them in different ways. But don't shy away from any of them, for sure. Yeah. I, that, that's what, one thing I can say I'm proud of when I, when I put my pen to paper. I'm proud that I, I don't, I'm not afraid, if I have a thought and I think it's important, I'm not afraid to put it down on paper. And I'm not afraid to put it down the way I think it needs to be put down there. I think, especially when it's around white people. If it's around white people, I feel this ur I f feel this urgent need, and this comes from that same time period during that last Black History Month. But I feel the need to write it down exactly the way I'm thinking, um, and a lot of times that comes out as black as it can possibly come out, and it, it can get frustrating only because later, if I'm doing a workshop and there are a bunch of white people around me, they're like, "Can you explain this?" <laughs> um, and that can be a little frustrating because I'm like, it's common sense. Like, this is that simple, but in reality, it's really not for them, for y'all mm -hmm. sometimes. <laughs> not. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one thing I'm proud of is being able to put it down on paper and not be afraid from what black experiences I have of just living. But there's put also it down the on paper. work, and I think this is why it, it feels really heavy, especially even, you know, no one's doing overtly racist things, or even not even thinking about microaggressions, none of that. You've got well-meaning white folks around you. They're friendly, they're fun, we hang out and all of that. But there's also the burden of having to teach all the time. So they have questions. And so they want to ask you, why this, what's this, why that? Whereas with black people and other cultures outside of whiteness, we have to learn these things about mainstream culture, whether we learn the hard way in a life experience or whether we hop on Google and learn what something is. You don't really have a lot of white people that do that. They don't think, I mean, you can Google um, the uh, translation for, for something in, um, what's the, 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 uh, the Star Trek? Oh, Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, the um, what's the um, alien race? I'm I'm not as <laughs> trekky. I'm sorry. Oh, the the Klingons. The Klingons, the, right? You can Google how to say something in Klingon, but you can't Google why don't black people want you to touch their hair. Right? <laughs> so that, that's something where you actually need to interact with uh, black. A, a black person and 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 yeah. ask these questions in a respectful way. You know, well, open up I mean, a dialogue. you also could Google them. You know, you can. You got, yeah. There are videos plenty. There's plenty of why is it disrespectful to do this? Why should you not refer to a black person's skin um, like a food? Like, oh, you're so chocolatey, or. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it, it, it fetishizes their blackness. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, yeah, there, there are all these little things. So if someone says, oh, no, don't do that, or I'm offended, don't then sit that person down and force them to explain this mm -hmm. to you. Say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that offense, and then go to Google, because I promise you it's there. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of times, what, as a student, from coming from a student perspective, a lot of times, from a student perspective, when white kids ask other black kids, like, why doesn't this work? For our generation, we're kind of like, I, I'll sit here and explain, because, you know, it's whatever. But after doing it a couple times, it's irritating. It's mm -hmm. like... It's, at this point, why is it not common sense that you don't do this? Like, you just don't. I felt that responsibility. It, it, it's really, oh, it's so tiring. It's so exhausting to have to sit down and explain to you why asking me why Black History Month is, is a month. Why, why is that a conversation? It's also something, though, I mean, and this is outside of true friendships, right? So you have, this is how you know if you really have a black friend or not. <laughs> so, your black friend will go ahead and explain something to you. If someone doesn't want, they're, they're, they're not your friend, they're your associate or whatever. Um, I've explained things to my white friends. Um, I explain things to my students because it's part of my job and my responsibility and you know you have that when you take on a position where you are the only black woman in your department. Um, so, yeah, I want to make sure that my students, because I care about them, um, have this basic knowledge. So when we get to these issues in reading and in class, I explain them, you know, as they come up. Um, but other than that, just kind of expecting your classmate who you sit next to to take on the burden of now being your personal tutor yeah. into, you know, parts of blackness that's really your token black friend. Yeah, and, and not every black person can explain all the intricacies of the culture. You know, if you just expose yourself to just a wide variety uh, ranging across, you know, different identities, then yeah, you will find an answer to some of your questions. And some questions necessarily aren't meant to be answered you know there's not really an, a, def a definitive answer for every single aspect of every single culture it's just something you just kind of experience something you know yeah and and just the respect of someone's humanity if they tell you that they're uncomfortable with something what other time would someone says please don't do that it makes me uncomfortable that you would then push further yeah. right that's just being I, can i say an a-hole yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, that, I mean, that's just being a jerk, right? And so they tend not to, with race, that seems to be the exception. No, please tell me why. Please, it's like, I've told you this is uncomfortable for me. I don't like right. it. Mm -hmm. um, please refrain from that, right? Unfortunately, I had the experience where somebody was just like, unfortunately, you got it was a white man, 30 years old last semester oh my god all the 30 year old white men um but they, they he kind of like pushed me he was like you're gonna have to take on the responsibility of letting her know this this and this out of respect for this this and this and i went ahead and let her know because we had had too many classes together and i had too much respect for her intelligence not to tell her mm -hmm. but to take on that responsibility just because i'm the only black person you know no ma'am i'm not doing that um, and for, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of my other black writer friends who are also women, they didn't really put themselves in that seat because they didn't feel the net. It's all about the person. Like you said earlier, not every black person can do that. Mm -hmm. And that, not because, and some of it sometimes it's not because we can't, we don't have the brain or the mind or the patience to do it. It's because we don't feel like we have to. Yeah. Um, when you, and sometimes you actually literally can't. When you grow up being submersed in that, and you're just, you know, that's your, being black is your mainstream, like, it doesn't make sense to have to explain it to somebody. How can you explain your own mainstream, what, what's just constant for you? I think, I don't know. For me, I understood that she wouldn't fully understand because I had been outside of that for a while. Like, I understood that she might have a few questions because she has a whole different mindset. But for some black people, they're not like that, so they won't because they don't feel the need to. Mm -hmm. And I wish I was that person. <laughs> well, for me, like I said, I have my white friends, 
um, that I allocate. I mean, most of my white friends, I guess, are what you would call woke anyway. <laughs> but because um, of your friends. Hey, yeah. <laughs> so that um, and family members as well, and my students. Anyone outside of that circle, I don't do it. I, it's like, nope, not today. Nope. And you have to do that for your personal sanity. Like, yeah, yeah. Because um, yeah. at some point it does become I'm, sanity. I am not like super black woman with a cape who's saving all of the... I mean, <laughs> seriously, Google. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, you're, you're just Shelly Connor. Sorry, Dr. Shelly Connor. You're who you are. Yeah, and if there, I guarantee if there is something that you need to know and you've got a cell phone on you with internet capabilities, you could find it quicker than I could explain it to you. You could mm -hmm. find a nice vlog where it's acted out in all of like 30 to 60 seconds. Oh, yeah. Francesca Lay. Um, Ramsey, she does these like I think it's I don't know if it's MTV or whatever, but it's um or BuzzFeed, but she does like these little minute long blurbs about you know what's a microaggression, what's this, what's that. I'm like, there you go. She has a career explaining blackness to whiteness, so um, you can definitely find it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. So in your uh novel every man mm -hmm. um you are exploring the idea of i from what i understand it's two different perspectives uh from the 1920s and then later in the 1970s uh parallel par parallel narratives and it's exploring this movement of uh, i believe it's quoted as the great migration of african americans yeah so um one of like the kind of largest um voluntary migrations in the country. It far exceeded things like the Dust Bowl and the California Gold Rush. And so between roughly 1915 and 1972, you had black people moving from the South to the North, to the Midwest, um, to escape Jim Crow um, laws and racial inequality, but also for better uh, job opportunities. So you had them coming to Chicago for the meatpacking industry, you had them doing Ohio for the um, steel in industry, and um, Detroit for uh, the automotive industry, and then some that also went uh, west to California. And so, I mean, yeah, just droves of black people, and it changed the racial demographics of, of major cities like Chicago when it got to be majority black city. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, every man, looks at um, a character, Eve, who's in 1972 Chicago, and um, she's raised by an aunt and doesn't really know anything about her family, and it makes her feel lost. Um, and so it's her, you know, trying to collect these, um, these stories and this information, and so in that, the narrative itself moves backwards and parallels that migration, and it goes all the way back to 1920, Macon County, Georgia. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I I really uh, was capturing the theme er, from from your uh, novel. I was uh, getting the theme of forgetting, in almost intentionally forgetting the past, mm -hmm. and it opens up a question of how can we move on if we forget the past, or can we even move on if we're still stuck in the past? Yeah, I, I definitely was inspired by Toni Morrison on that. Um, a couple of her works, Song of Solomon and uh, Beloved, deals with that, um, what she called a um, willful forgetfulness, um, where certain traumas and, and things of the past are too painful, and so you choose to move away from it. But you, you can't really, so you're, you're tethered to it. So there's this remembering, joining back um, this. And what that looks like with people who are related to, but not directly affected by that trauma. So clearly my character, her aunt, doesn't divulge this information to her because of her experience. Mm -hmm. But Eve still has this desire to know and to at least choose for herself whether it's a memory that she wants to engage with or not but the just the kind of 
severing of it and, and leaving her feeling incomplete um, is how she feels with that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, Marissa, um, you mentioned to me before we started recording about your uh, diary entries project and your oh. nonfiction work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you mentioned before, whenever you try to write as honestly as you can, sometimes you come across as very representative of your of your identity as an African-American female writer. Mm -hmm. And so w with your nonfiction work, you know, you're just expressing your ideas and just who you are. And earlier we talked about finding a separation between your writing identity and your personal identity. How do you feel your work plays into all that? So, huh? <laughs> how does that play into that? How, how does my writer identity play into that? Um, how do, you know, in your nonfiction work, mm -hmm. you're simply just telling a story. Mm -hmm. and, and it's representative of who you are as a person and... Are there any struggles with connecting that to your identities, I guess? And because at the end of the day, you're just earnestly trying to tell a story. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I don't really think I separate anything when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I think I talked about this a little bit uh, before, kind of how my, because that's all I know, that's, that's how I, even those things are really painful for me. So like I mentioned before, I, I used to be homeless. For me, that's an important part of my story, especially in nonfiction, but duh. Um, you know, that but it also that that also has a part in what I identify as being black for me. So being homeless and being black kind of it's a weird thing to say, but it kind of played a role in how I perceived everybody else around me. Because at the time that I was homeless, I was actually going to a school where everybody else wasn't black and so getting to see all these other little kids running around with 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 their expensive shoes on and their clean clothes and actually being fed the night before um that played a role in how I saw myself and how I saw my future and what I thought I could achieve so that even that kind of little tiny detail plays a role in how I write and it's I, I can't separate those two things all right. Um, I thank you. Uh, I think that's all the time we have. Um, is there any way that our listeners can reach you uh, after listening to this episode that you'd like to plug? Yeah, I mean, my UCA email, um, you can look me up there, but also my um, webpage, mshellyconnor.com. You can find me there as well. Um, and you can follow my editing company at Journey Writer on Instagram. All right, thank All right. you. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, thank you for joining us, and I hope our listeners have had a wonderful time venturing through the vortex. Thank you.